Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord, and truly we long to to sing that song, Lord, with all of our hearts, Lord, in sincerity and in truth, Lord, that to Jesus, Lord, we give our love, Lord, so that we can say to him, Jesus, I love thee. And so, Lord, I pray that um, everything that we do here, all the all of the studying of your word, every every little piece of theology that we learn every piece of theology and every every uh, ounce of knowledge that we um, collect and that we gather in our life will only be for the purpose of loving Jesus more and uh, glorifying your name more. So, Lord, please, God, give us that heart, Lord, to make uh, theology something that is for your glory and your honor and that it would only enhance our communion with God. So, Father, we pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, as you can see, um, as promised, we're moving on to uh, the grand subject of eschatology. And, uh, you know, eschatology is such an important subject for all theology, but um, obviously uh, the word eschatology, uh, just it comes from the Greek word and... I'm going to be writing a little bit up here, so we'll see... I told Chris, I said, you know, I think I'm going to knock out eschatology in a couple lessons. And <laughs> he just laughed at me. <laughs> Especially when I told him how many, how many slides I already had. I've got, like, I've got like 12 or 15 slides. He's like, I think you average about four <laughs> <laughs> for Sunday school. So I don't go very far. But um, um, here we go. Eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos, right? Which just means last things. It literally just means last. Uh, but last what? You know, last times, uh, last days. Uh, so probably the, the most literal rendition of this Greek word would be uh, as with the way uh, grammarians talk about certain um, uh, nominative uh, nouns like this, it would be things. So last things. Um, of course, uh, eschatology is very, very important to our theology. And what I want to do today is I just want to, I want to probably just kind of give us a 10,000 foot view. Uh, but I also want to go through uh, some of the, um, the finer points that I've kind of laid out here. Um, let me just, before I get to this, uh, let me just talk about four things here in terms of eschatology what I've entitled The Priority, the Complexity, the Categories, and the Ethics of Eschatology. Um, priority. The reason I mentioned priority is because the Bible um, uh, you know, is a deeply eschatological book. How many of you have heard what the percentage of scriptures, literal texts uh, you know, per capita in the Bible is given to prophecy? Yes, sir? How, how, what is the percentage of the Bible that is given to prophecy? I'd say about 80%. Anyone? I heard something like 30 to 40% of the Bible is prophetic. It has something to do with prophecy. So that's why you know I'm saying priority, because eschatology is not something that we can just ignore, right? As, as perplexing as it might be, it's still something that's very important. Right, um, uh, theologians would actually make the case that the Bible actually begins not with soteriology; it actually begins with eschatology. 
Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Um, Genesis chapter 3, you already have, um, if you know your Bibles, right? You, are, you already have uh, sort of typological indicators of doctrines and things that have to do with eschatology. Uh, for example, in uh, Genesis, we'll even go back to Genesis chapter 2, um, Genesis chapter 2, we are given um, this description of the tree of life, right? We're told that man is, or, or the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, which that's not the one I really wanted to focus on, but really it was the tree of life. And so we, we look over at Genesis 3, well, where's that at? 22, 3.22, where he says, where he forbids them from partaking of the tree of life. But uh, I just point out the tree of life because uh, you don't find a reference to the tree of life in the word of God again after Genesis until what? Revelation. Revelation. Now, here's a question. Do you think that's intentional from the time Genesis was written? (laughs) Do you think God intended that when he wrote Genesis, (laughs) when he revealed Genesis? Genesis. Of course he did, right? <laughs> it's uh, You wouldn't have been able to tell uh, at the time of Genesis that God would give the last book of his canon and that he would come back to the Genesis scene and talk about the tree of life and talk about, um, you know, all these garden themes, right? That just shows us that the Bible is hardwired eschatologically. So already it's typifying, you know, the coming future you know, new heavens, new earth, you know. Uh, and in fact, um, entire books have been written to describe how Genesis 1 and 2 are sort of um, uh, described throughout the Bible over and over again. The themes that you find in Genesis are actually described uh, as redemption rolls on. We're going to look at that, hopefully, if we tackle biblical theology, but it just shows us that from the very beginning, you have references to eschatology. Um, you have Genesis 3.15. You have the prophecy, uh, which is really the gospel prophecy, right? Which is already predicting what's going to happen in the future, that God is going to give uh, some, uh, uh, you know, miraculous, and of course now we know messianic seed that is going to redeem his people, right? Uh, restore uh, uh, and reverse the curse, and it's going to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, so that is all very prophetic, eschatological scripture, because this is talking about something that's coming thousands of years from the time that it was given. So, of course, uh, from this point in Genesis, you already have eschatology hardwired into the text of scripture. Um, uh, you see what I'm saying? Genesis 1 and 3... Uh, the original creation is is an eschatological foreshadowing of the new creation. <laughs> so already in the first opening chapters of Genesis, the Bible is you know sort of anticipating the new creation from the very beginning. So where where is the Bible going? Well, the Bible is going from creation to the fall to redemption to new creation, or as some just want to call it consummation, right? We can call it new creation just to keep the symmetry going, but that is essentially the redemptive plan of God throughout all of the ages. 
that is the way that it's working out. And so God's eschatological consummation, however, begins at the original creation, and then you see aspects of that throughout the entire plan of redemption. Um, But let me just bring this up here, um, because the Bible tells us don't be ignorant of eschatology. Don't be ignorant of the last times. And certainly we should not. I mean, Jesus rebuked the people because they could tell the weather, but they could not tell the signs of the times, right? And so we don't have an excuse to be ignorant in terms of eschatology. Am I not on? No. Sorry, okay. Say, for everybody out there, everything I just said was introduction anyway, so here we go. The next thing, though, is that we have to be honest about its complexity. It's complex. Anybody in here figure out eschatology? Somebody want to switch? <laughs> you figured it all out. You've answered all mysteries. Um, I tell you what, I, 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 I am, I've always been very honest with the fact that eschatology is a very complex uh, uh, doctrine. Uh, the deeper you go, the more complex that it gets because the deeper you go and the finer points you start developing, the more people have counterpoints and counterarguments and, and all of that. Um, and then I also wanted to talk about the categories of eschatology. The categories of eschatology just deal with, if you remember, um, the fact that there is personal eschatology and there is what I called cosmic eschatology, or what other theologians have described as general eschatology. And that's really what we're looking at now, is general eschatology. Personal eschatology has to do with what happens to a person at death, personally. When you undergo your eschatological advancement, when you die and you, you enter into an intermediate state where your soul and your spirit, your soul and your body are separate, and you go to be in the presence of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, and, and, you, and, and, and you are awaiting resurrection and you are awaiting glor- you know, f- uh, complete glorification, all of those things have to do with personal eschatology. General eschatology, however, just has to do with the broader... Um, the broader subject of eschatology, eschatology, eschatology on a cosmic level, uh, which of course is referring to the end of the age, the end of the world, the second coming, the tribulation, the new heavens, the new earth, the millennium, the nature of the millennium. These are all issues dealing with general eschatology. And then last of all, I just put down the ethics of eschatology because um, I can tell you that I have an array of theological heroes that I look up to, right? I love me some Jonathan Edwards, right? And I love me some Gerhardus Voss, and I love me some George Ladd or Tom Schreiner or, or whatever, some Wayne Grudem, but they all disagree, adamantly disagree on eschatology, and these are all great godly men. I mean, Jonathan Edwards, I mean, uh, uh, I became a Reformed and I became a Calvinist because of Jonathan Edwards. It was after reading the religious affections that I really began to understand that Reformed theology was actually biblical. It was the truth. It was what the Bible taught. Well, Jonathan Edwards was a post-millennialist. He believed that uh, the millennium is not only, uh, not only is it happening now, but the millennium is actually uh, uh, going to usher in a golden age of Christendom where the, the world is actually going to Christianize and it will climax in the return of Christ. Um, consequently, at the same time, 
many other theologians. Gerhardus Voss, one of the greatest uh, biblical theologians ever, was an amillennialist and believes that, the again, the millennium is now, but the difference being is that he believed in a pessimistic view of the future. And, of course, Wayne Grudem is probably where I'm at in terms of eschatology, would be a historic premillennialist. He believes that there is a coming literal thousand-year reign of Christ to the earth. Um, and uh, so you have these different camps. So I thought I'd begin by putting up just these camps just to kind of set, set the stage, right? I said I wasn't, I told Chris I wasn't even going to do this this week, but it's almost like how can you not, right? Mm-hmm. So you have, you have the uh, pre, let's give, let's give priority to the pre-mills, okay? <laughs> pre-mill, you have all-mill, and then you have post-mill. Uh, the, the only reason I do that is just because um, I think it's important when you start thinking of hermeneutical categories that these, these distinctions really are the big ones. I mean, this is really where your eschatology is going to be defined. Um, uh, you know, if you are a premillennialist, then you believe that the second coming happens before the millennium. So the second coming before the millennium, right? If you're an amillennialist, then you believe that uh, the second coming happens after. Um, Can and you then define if you're, the millennium? What's that? What's the millennium? The millennium is the, 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 millennium is the, the, the thousand years that is referenced in Revelation chapter 20 uh, that speaks of the reign of Christ in some way. Let's just leave it at that for now, <laughs> right? It references a thousand years. So it uses the word uh, thousand, which is the Greek word kilios, which kiliism is the ancient uh, doctrine of believing in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth separated by two resurrections. Okay, that would be a premillennial view. Premillennialism believes in two resurrections, at least, right? <laughs> and that's one, of the, that's one of the accusations is that seems like at least two resurrections. Uh, we'll get to that eventually. Amillennialism believes in only one resurrection. And postmillennialism, same thing. Postmillennialism also believes that the second coming, that almost looks like second Corinthians, it's second coming. Second coming is after a thousand years. A thousand years. So... <clears throat> These, you know, this, the premillennial camp interprets the millennium literally, right? So the thousand years is literal. That's what it's, uh, that's what they believe. Um, all millennialists believe that the thousand years is figurative. Right? It is a figurative number. Same thing with, uh, with post mills. They also believe that it is figurative. It's not a literal thousand-year period of time. It's just talking about a general period of time. And so uh, both amillennial and postmillennial theologians say that uh, Revelation chapter 20 is kind of like those passages in the Bible where it talks about, you know, one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And so they would say, there you go. You have metaphorical use of the word kilios. And so they would say, God owns a, you know, the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, obviously, he doesn't mean a literal thousand hills. It's just a metaphorical amount of hills to describe a great reality. So they would say the same thing with the, with the, with the millennium. It's just, a, it's just a prophetic metaphor. 
It's just a figurative way of talking about a lengthy period of time, which really has to do with the church age. Yes, sir? Historically, when, what time frame were these three camps kind of landed or, or kind of cohesively put together? From, from the very, very beginning, uh, you have uh, evidence of all three camps. From the very, very beginnings, from the church fathers, you have, you have different uh, church uh, fathers, apostolic fathers that are believing in each, semblances of each of these types of views. Uh, very early on, you have church fathers believing in two resurrections, literal thousand years. I think Tertullian may be an example of that. Um, also, amillennialism is something that is found also in the early church fathers. Augustine is historically identified as an amillennialist. Okay, and I think you also have evidence of postmillennialism um, in the early church. Yes, sir. The reformers. So going. So let me just on that point. Going back to the early church does not resolve the controversy. Because <laughs> you can go to the early church, you can take up, um, you could take up Greg Allison's historical theology book, and he'll give you evidence of citations for and against each camp. So yes, sir. Oh, just which one? With the reformers, the reformers were historically all mill and post mill, um, and uh, there's you know debates that rage on and on about that. I would say the Puritans. So you're talking about maybe the period of time uh, from John Owen all the way up to the late uh, 18th century. So or no 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 17th century. So 1600s around that period of time. Most of the Puritans were post millennial. Uh, they did believe in in a uh, so, so let's talk about this distinction just for a second, right? You have amillennial and postmillennial interpretations of Scripture. The, the, sep- the distinction here, as you can see, because they're similar, they both believe in only one resurrection at the second coming, right? They believe that the thousand-year p- period of time is figurative, so they agree on these points. Where they disagree is that... Uh, Pessimism, <clears throat> optimism, <clears throat> and you know if you're a real diehard uh, all mill or post mill, you know you kind of quibble about these terms. But it's a general way that theologians have summarized the difference that all millennialists have a pessimistic outlook of the future for this age. Um, where are pre mills on that point, right? Pessimism. <clears throat> Premillennialism is the same as amillennialism on that point. We believe that the world is going to get worse. We believe in a coming tribulation period. Most uh, amillennial theologians believe in a literal uh, tribulation period at the end of the age, as, as mentioned in Matthew chapter 24 and in other places. Uh, postmillennialism believes has an optimistic view of the future. They believe no, the kingdom of God is like a, you know, it's like a germane seed that it starts small, but it eventually grows and grows and grows, and before you know it, it will take over the earth. And they quote all of these uh, passages out of the Old Testament that talk about the mountain of the Lord growing and covering the earth and all of this. And they say, see, that's the kingdom. That's the gospel going out. That's the church populating the, the, the globe and eventually taking over. Uh, Greg Bonson uh, is an evangelical proponent of post-millennial, post, post-millennialism. I'm going to be doing a lot of tongue-tied type things <laughs> up here, so try not to trip up too much. But Bonson 
is probably the guy uh, back in the 80s and 90s that really uh, began to popularize uh, postmillennialism. And how did he do it? His apologetics. <laughs> because how many of us in here use presuppositional apologetics? Okay, so several people, right? Um, well, Bonson is probably the, the popular evangelical level uh, sort of proponent for presuppositional apologetics that popularized presuppositional apologetics, made it what it is today. Um, but with Bonson came postmillennialism. And a lot of people that went into presuppositional apologetics became postmillennial at the same time. And uh, theonomy also followed along with that as well. Yes, ma'am. And then, you know, do you think that the, um, the reformers, they were post mostly because Catholicism were, you know, because Martin Luther was also post, wasn't he? I think so. Yeah. So do you think that that had an influence on that? Sure, I mean, I mean that's been pointed out, and of course, postmillennialists they won't appreciate that. You know what I mean? But definitely, um, definitely, you know, we are all, and if we think we're immune to that, we're wrong, right? But we are all influenced by by our times. We are people of our times, and uh, if you don't think that's true, I mean, if you lived, depending on whether or not you lived prior or after World War One and Two, <laughs> guess what? After you know, before World War One, postmillennialism was on the rise. After World War One and Two, guess what exploded on the evangelical scene? Premillennialism. People thought, how in the world is things getting better? We're having world wars where we can literally end the earth by, you know, the wars and the, the weapons that man is creating and, you know, on and on and on that goes. So it's like, what are you talking about? Golden era? <laughs> Looks like we're going to end in a judgment of fire. You know, so definitely influenced the evangelical mood at that point. Uh, that was a very, very significant. People have written books on the significance, the influence, the impact that the world wars had on evangelical theology. That's just a fact, you know what I mean? So, um, but they believe in an optimistic outlook for the future. They believe that, yes, uh, eventually uh, the church will take over uh, the kingdoms of this world, the governments, the civil laws, everything. Eventually we will... We will influence. Uh, Bonson, I remember, was famous for making the statement. He said, I believe the gospel is so powerful, it will take over the earth. And I thought, okay, well, anyway. Uh, uh, among these camps, just to be quite honest with you folks, um, probably the least, the least uh, uh, favorite, or the, the, I, I lean the least towards post-mill. Uh, okay, I, I don't, I just don't see enough exegetical, and I listened to hours and hours of lectures by Greg Bonson on postmillennialism many years ago, and I just found it to be so exegetically flawed. Uh, I mean, so many exegetical fallacies that he was making in his lectures that was kind of striking to me because, you know, I learned so much from his apologetics, it was almost like anything Bonson said was gospel you know, but then I listened to his post mill lectures and I found them to be completely wanting. Yes, sir. Is uh, Van Til and John Frame or all those guys post mill also? Um, uh, no, I, I believe Frame and Van Til both are going to be all mill. Yeah. So, so, so maybe just a. Um, I've done this before for several people, but let me just 
just word to the wise, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm just going to kind of let you know, okay, because this is kind of current right now uh, in the church. You know, a lot of people are going to get mad at me for saying this. But uh, just to return to Bonson for a moment, uh, what, has ha- what has happened with Bonson? Okay, let me just put Bonson up here. There, there he is. Okay. <laughs> Let's put Bonson on a timeline, okay? What has happened with Bonson is that today's presuppositional camp has moved mainly, some of them have moved this way, meaning after Bonson. Okay, this is, this is A.D. Bonson over here. Okay? <laughs> B.C. Bonson over here. Okay. And after Bonson, where they've gone is they've gone to people uh, uh, like American Vision, right? American Vision. So you're talking about people like Gary DeMar, uh, and folks like that, and then after that, you're talking about people like Rush Dooney, uh, who are Reconstructionist, theonomist, postmillennialist type folks, okay, and also are presuppositionalists. So they're moving in this direction, uh, and people that followed after Bonson and what they did with Bonson's theology. In my opinion, if you want my opinion on how to rightly interact with Bonson. In my opinion, I mean, because I reject postmillennialism and I reject theonomy and reconstructionism, in my opinion, the wiser thing to do is to go this way with Bonson and understand what gave birth to Bonson. What gave birth to Bonson, of course, was Van Til. Cornelius Van Til. What gave birth to Cornelius Van Til was Voss. Gerhardus Voss. What gave birth to Gerhardus Voss was people like Babink. And I just, the reason I mention this is because I think a lot of folks are going the wrong way. Shoot me, write me emails, you know, attack me on Facebook, whatever. You know what I mean? Um, I'm just saying, you know, like Van Til would not agree with Bonson's postmillennial theonomic views. He would consider them novel. He would consider them unreformed, to be quite honest with you, because of the Westminster Standards, and of Dort, all of that. And, you know, these things have been debated ad infinitum, ad agnosium, and I have no interest in debating those things. But, because I know that Bonson's influence is so powerful today in the church, um, it's undeniable, you know. How many of you guys saw the video I posted by Mark Spence uh, doing open-air preaching evangelism on Facebook? Watched a little bit of that. I think he did great. Fantastic. He was preaching at Berkeley. Thought he did a really good job. Well, I mean, uh, you know, Mark Spence is, you know, one of the, um, how do I say this? I mean, he is, you know, he is in the leadership of one of the most influential ministries in America with Living Waters, Ray Comfort, and all those folks, right? And he has been heavily influenced by Bonson. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I'm just saying, like, this is how far-reaching it is. How many of you guys have heard of Ken Ham? Ken Ham says that after years of disagreeing with Bonson, he finally came to the conclusion that Bonson was right. And so he's abandoned his evidentialism for presuppositionalism. <clears throat> how many of you guys heard of the Creation Research Institute, Jason Lyle? Jason Lyle is also, I don't want to call him a Bonsonite, but he's a, he's a Bonsonite, you know? <laughs> and we've debated some of these things. Anyway, I won't, I won't go there, but... but uh, yes, sir? Just to clarify, yeah. I agree with Bonson, not on his eschatology, 
Some of them do, some of them don't. But yes, I'm just pointing out, right now I'm just focusing on his apologetics. Yeah. So they agree with him on his apologetics, and I'm just bringing that up to show you that it's important because when you have all these people interacting with Bonson, is there any surprise that a lot of these Bonson fans are post-mill, theonomous, just like Bonson? <laughs> because they go from his apologetics and think, well, everything Bonson teaches is right. And so they hook, line, and sinker. They just, well, Bonson said, Bonson said, Bonson said. And that, that's fine if that's where your conscience is at. If that's what you want to believe, um, then, of course, we have to respect that. But for, for me and for our church, I would just want to enlighten you folks to the, the tradition because I became a presuppositionalist not reading Bonson. I became a presuppositionalist reading Van Hill, thankfully. Uh, thank God that he led me to the book. Trish and I were just reminiscing about this the other night. That I went through an epistemology meltdown because I was very evangelistic, you know, even as a young Christian and apologetics. I just loved, you know, apologetics going out there and witnessing everything that moved. And um, my, my wife's going to be like, where's that zeal gone? <laughs> I, uh, I try to stay evangelistic. But, but um, you know, I came to the conclusion that evangelism was... Um, was, was, was wrong. For me, I, I found it to be wanting. Uh, the idea that I was presenting a probable God was just, you know, ended up, Van Til ended up showing me that that's actually an amoral position, immoral position for a Christian to hold. That you're teaching the probability that God exists is immoral, and it doesn't show that your life is under the Lordship of Christ. So anyway, Bonson came into my life and really, really delivered me from the clutches of of empiricism. I mean, that's really what it was, you know, the idea that one fact at a time uh, had to be established and that you're building this sort of, this case little by little and eventually you get to enough probability that it's probably a good chance that God exists and you should believe in him. And I just found that to be completely unbiblical when the Bible says no, no doubting, no wavering, full assurance of faith. And I thought, how's that compatible with that? Yes, ma'am. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 you know, in all fairness, a lot of those books have elements of presuppositionalism in it. Um, but as James White says, you know, consistency, consistency, consistency. You know, we have to be consistent. You cannot hope to adopt little pieces of Aristotelianism, which that's really what it is. And a lot of this, I'm saying this for the record, okay? Because I'm recording it, but. Um, you know, which is basically just Aristotelian thought is important because it, it, it elevates the autonomous reason of man above the revelation of God, right? That knowledge is acquired through a person's autonomous reason. And Aristotelianism and Pelagianism or Arminianism go hand in hand, and that's why Thomas Aquinas adopted both, and that's why the Catholic Church has always been both. Right, Aristotelian in their apologetic and Arminian in their view of anthropology or the nature of man. Yes, sir. I was actually just going to add to what you just said, but you had already said it. You know, what flows better from Scripture mm-hmm. is uh, either the presuppositional position or yeah. evidentialist. Do you ever see in Scripture where they are presenting uh, arguments to try to get you to conclude God? rather than God being the forefront of the argument and everything flows from that. Yeah, Yeah. so not to make this a whole presuppositional yeah. class, you know, but uh, do you guys understand my burden 
at least to talk about Bonson post-millennialism, the connection there because of the influence of, of apologetics. Now, any other questions here before we leave this? Yeah, was there anything um, you were saying uh, how you know, people are a product of their culture? Yeah. Was there something in Bonson's time period that probably affected him more to lean towards post-millennialism? That's a good question. I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so. I think Bonson... Um, yeah, I, I think Bonson's... Uh, honestly, I think the way that it worked with Bonson is that he adopted theonomy first, and then the only eschatology that's compatible with theonomy is postmillennialism. Uh, you cannot have theonomy without postmillennialism. You, you really don't have any amillennial theonomists. It just doesn't work. I think even Bonson admitted that in several of his writings, that postmillennialism must be true in order for theonomy to be true. So I think he was motivated by his eschatology, which brings us back full circle to the subject. <laughs> right? So as you can see, I mean, this is where the different camps uh, go. Now, any questions uh, on these? We'll come back to this, Lord willing, next week. Yes, ma'am? Uh, would you define for me what you're talking about when you're saying the resurrection views? Yeah, so, right, so... <clears throat> Uh, the premillennial position believes in two resurrections, right? So just turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, and I'll show you that real quick. Um, Revelation chapter 20. What they would just say is that the plain reading of the text suggests that there is a, you know, there is a thousand-year reign, because that is asserted uh, in this chapter, and it says in verse 1 that I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key. See, and, and the premillennials would say, notice that the angel came down from heaven, right? So wherever John is, he is not in heaven because he is, the angel is coming down out of heaven. So the scene that he's relating, he must be relating it on the earth. That's the argument for premillennialism. Uh, holding the key of the abyss of the great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So there's the thousand years, right? The reason why that's important is because um, is because at the end of chapter 19, you already have the second coming of Christ, right? The end of chapter 19, you already have the second coming of Christ. And when, the, when Christ returns, nobody, nobody debates that when Christ returns, let's say you're pre-tribulational. You believe that there will be a rapture uh, seven years before the second coming. Okay? You still believe that there will be a, 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 a resurrection. Right? And if you're pre-millennial uh, and post-tribulational, meaning you believe the second coming happens after the tribulation period, okay? You still believe a resurrection has taken place. But now, this is saying that a thousand years has intervened after the coming of Christ. If, chapter 20, verse 1, if you take that successively, meaning after the second coming of chapter 19, chapter 20, verse 1, is saying something like, then after the events of chapter 19, I saw. You see what I'm saying? So you're talking about uh, a consecutive events. Whereas amillennial and postmillennial would say, no, this is a recapitulation 
of the events that have already transpired, and they draw the case that that phrase, uh, Ada, every time he says, I saw, I saw, I saw, in the book of Revelation, it can be shown pretty easily that there is a recapitulation. Uh, chapter 5 of Revelation, Jesus already comes back. So what's the rest of the chapters about if it's not recapitulating something? There's no doubt there's recapitulation. The question is, is there recapitulation here? <laughs> right? So, so then he says, Satan was thrown into the abyss and shut and sealed so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so what they're saying is that this is dealing with the first resurrection. And now look at verse 5. The rest did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And so that seems to indicate that there, there's a future resurrection. So Christ returns, and as this thousand years is getting underway, there is an initial resurrection. And here he's focusing in on the martyrs, the people that defeated the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. How? Through their martyrdom. As accompanied by their martyrdom, right? And so what he's saying is that the rest of the dead... The rest of the dead, so seemingly the wicked, did not come to life until the thousand years is over. It says, blessed and holy, watch this, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. And so when the Bible says the first resurrection, it's seemingly to imply that there is a second. Would it not? You don't call something the first if there's not the second and the third. But we know there's only the first and the second. <laughs> and so what they would say is that the second resurrection takes place in verse 11. Then I saw the great throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open and the other book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written according to, these de to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which are in it and the dead... And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged. So there you go. You have death and Hades giving up the dead that were in hell. <laughs> wow. Hell is going to give up the dead to what? To resurrect for final judgment. That's what they're saying. It says, Then the death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Maybe possibly, I mean, just throw this out there, guys. I'm not trying to make too many dogmatic claims because I know that in here we have folks maybe that don't agree with um, where I'm at, maybe precisely, you know, people are like, where are you at? <laughs> uh, right now, just to be frank with you, I'm still in the premillennial camp. Uh, Luther said it is not safe to go against conscience. It's not safe uh, and it's not wise. So until I am firmly convinced of all the amillennial or postmillennial arguments and I have, by conscience, come to embrace those things, um, I can't say that I'm an amillennialist. A uh, lot to say on all that, but yes, sir? Evangelicalism right now, today, 
what would you say from just your study what's the most popular that you hear that people mostly favor? I, I, boy, <laughs> I don't know, like globally, <laughs> uh, I think globally, um, I'm pretty sure that post-tribulationalism um, is more popular than pre-tribulationalism only because on a global scale, so much of the church is under persecution that they don't believe that they will be exempt from any tribulation when they're watching their family and their loved ones being executed in front of their eyes, right? They don't, they don't see how we're going to be escaping the great tribulation. They would say, we're in the tribulation. What are you talking about? How much more tribulation can you handle, right? And I mean, obviously, that's the opinion. Uh, and I actually have a friend who actually does missions all over the world, from China to Africa to South Korea. He goes everywhere to, you know, uh, the UK. And he has told me that the dominant view is post-trib. Um, as far as the millennial debate is concerned, I think the most popular view right now is pre-millennial. But I will say this much, that I would say in the last... Let me say this, and I'm going to set this up in the, in, in the form of a question for you guys. I would say probably in the last 20 to 30 years, all millennialism in terms of popularity has skyrocketed. Why is that? Does anybody know? Shylin song. Shylin song? <laughs> I doubt it. Yeah. That's a, that might be a, a symptom of what I'm getting at, but... Probably, I would say, the reason people, in essence, the question, people are running away from pre-mill to all-mill... I think a lot of that would be like from the John Hagee kind of types. Okay, so reactionist type of mentality. Robert? Where is the millennium? It's the, the rise of the question of when's it happening. Uh-huh. I would assume you, you were saying why people would move. Why, why has all mill become popular today? Who said Calvinism? Yeah, reform theology, Calvinism. Uh, have you heard of the young, restless, and reformed movement, right? I mean, we're products of that by and large, um, and Reformed theology has skyrocketed, and with Reformed theology comes Reformed eschatology, which, let's be honest, Reformed eschatology is not premillennial. Reformed, reformed eschatology is either all or post. Yes, ma'am? You know, the Calvin scholars debate. Uh, I don't know, but uh, my current understanding of, 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 of a Calvin is that he was all yeah. Even though he doesn't, you won't find in his writing anywhere, I'm all mill. <laughs> it's more complicated than that, you know? Yes, sir? What, what, what uh, good authors would you recommend that kind of give a fair... Fair and balanced? <laughs> Where's the Fox News yeah, of eschatology? <laughs> uh, book that, uh, that Lynn gave me, actually, uh, Jonathan Men. Uh, I've been looking through the book that he recommended to me. It's actually a good book because... It surveys eschatology. He does a great job of, I, I, I got to grant it to him, and he's got some really, really top-notch scholars that are recommending his book. Um, um, so Jonathan Men, uh, what's the name of the book again? Eschatology? It's right here. Uh, made Simple or something like that? No, 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 no. Um, Explaining eschatology, you give it to us when you find it. But Jonathan Men is a good is a good book to start. There's also a commentary called the Four Views of Revelation, 
which is a parallel commentary. Literally, you have parallel <laughs> columns where you have the different views being presented and showed. Biblical eschatology. Biblical eschatology by Jonathan Mann, and he's showing the, just the different views. And he's, he's pretty fair. Wayne Grudem, have you guys read Wayne Grudem's chapter on eschatology? It's really good. You guys need to read it. Because I think it's very fair. Yeah. Hey, I mean, he's, he's where I'm at. Uh, that's not the only reason I'd recommend it. <laughs> he, he is a historic pre-mill guy, but, but uh, so is Piper, so is Al Mohler, um, so is George Ladd. Um, Spurgeon uh, uh, was a believer in two resurrections separated by a thousand years. Yes, ma'am? Where are the, tri- uh, the tribulations in the pre-mill? Where are the what now? The tribulation. Oh, thank you for that. So, <clears throat> the tribulational views, right? So... Uh, pre and no, no, no. That's not. That's not even right. right. Pre, mid, and post. Uh, post. Post. So, um, the premillennial view is threefold. In the premillennial camp, you have premill. Excuse me, pre-tribulational, mid-tribulational, and post-tribulational views, which means some people within premillennialism believe the rapture will happen before the tribulation, right? Is rapture a biblical word? No. Absolutely not. It's not found anywhere in scripture. It comes from the Latin word rapturas that comes from, uh, it comes from the, um, comes from the Greek word that means to be caught up. <coughs> Like it says in Second Thessalonians, I think it's where's that at? Chapter five, seven, no, two seventeen. So anyway, so pre-tribulational rapture, mid-tribulational rapture. Some believe that the rapture will take place in the middle of the tribulation, right? Where the Bible speaks about then there will be great tribulation. So the proponents of a mid-tribulational position say that. That the, that the tribulation period, let's just say down here, okay, uh, the, 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 the tribulational period is seven years, and that in the middle marks the beginning of the great tribulation, uh, when they would say that is when you really have the wrath of God being poured out, the bowls and the vials and the trumpets and all of that's going to really start triggering these apocalyptic things that happen, and uh, there's... One famous proponent of mid-tribulationalism. Does anybody know who that is? I'm gonna. You get huge points if you know this. Mid-tribulational position that the rapture will happen in the middle of the tribulation. There's a very famous proponent of mid-trib rapture. What's that? No, they're not. Good question. No more clues. Very smart man, by the way. Knew 27 Semitic languages. No. Is he alive? Oh, I say he wasn't alive. That's right. You're right, he's not alive. (laughs) He's more alive than we are. What are you talking about? He already underwent personal eschatology. Huh? Very, very famous uh, scholar by the name of Gleason Archer. <laughs> Come on, guys! Hey, I bet you you've seen Gleason Archer's book. You know what it is called? Chris, do you know? No, share your library. Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties by Gleason Archer. 
knew 27 Semitic languages, was an absolute genius. Uh, knew Arabic. I mean, the guy was absolute genius. He has an Old Testament introduction as well that is stellar, one of the best you could ever read. And he was a proponent of mid-tribulational rapture. Amazing, right? <laughs> so, amillennialism is post-tribulational. If there is a tribulation at all, I've got to be honest there too, some amillennials do not believe in a coming tribulation or in a coming antichrist. They believe that all of those things are principial. Those are principles, or they have a preterist interpretation of those events, meaning preterist uh, speaks of that which is historical, which already took place. So they would say that the events, especially that unfolded in 70 AD surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, all of those events in 70 AD fulfilled much of what Matthew 24 is talking about. So they don't believe in a tribulation at all. Some of them, some, some. I, I would say, I, I don't know. Um, uh, my reading of it, I would say, is that um, maybe it's split half and half almost. There are some Amils that do believe, you know, I, I, I went to a Westminster Theological Seminary breakout session where they were talking about eschatology. I think I told you guys about this. And I was talking to Lane Tipton and G.K. Beale and, and a couple others, uh, Lig Duncan. And I asked them personally, e- each one of them, I asked them, do you believe in a future tribulation, a literal tribulation period? And do you believe in a literal antichrist? And they all three of them said, absolutely, yes. There will be a tribulation. There will be an antichrist. Uh, um, yeah. Postmillennialism, same thing. Post-tribulational, Nancy. They believe that when Jesus returns, it will be after any tribulation is already over. But how could that be if everything's getting better? Yeah, exactly. They would say, there you go. Tribulation is over. It's already fulfilled, so they have a preterist interpretation of the tribulational passages. Okay, any questions? And we have 30 seconds. Yes, sir. By the way, I didn't get to slide three. You just hallelujah, amen. And... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I- I'll leave you guys with this. Old Testament eschatology. When is the first time that the word last days is mentioned in the Bible? End times. Genesis 49, verse 1. The Hebrew phrase is Beaharit Bahayim. Beaharit Hayamim. Beaharit Hayamim is the first time in the Old Testament, in the whole Bible, where the idea of the last days is mentioned. Is this graph in the systematic? No, this graph just is in my head. <laughs> All right, let's go to worship, you guys. Jason Lala's